Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Ryan Moffitt continues our series in 1 John, where he talks about the Antichrist. Let's listen. Really amazing stuff in this book of 1 John. Uh, One of the themes that he's going to say over and over and over again is that this is not some kind of generic, general, wide communication, but John repeatedly is going to say, I am writing to you. He's going to give us very specific instructions. So we don't have to guess what this letter is about. John just goes out of his way and he tells us. And oftentimes, I think that's interesting because oftentimes in the church, we can come in on a Sunday morning, such as uh, this morning, and we can hear the sermon and we can kind of think, I hope so-and-so heard that. That was really good, you know. I don't know if any of you guys follow the Babylon Bee. It's, it's a Christian satire website. Um, I, I love theology. Right, next, right below that, I love satire. It's like near the top of my love language. Um, their, their headline this week, uh, listen to this. This is great. During powerful sermon, woman deeply convicted that her husband needs to repent. <laughs> Here's the article. During a powerful Sunday sermon delivered by our pastor, a local woman has come under deep spiritual conviction that her husband really needs to repent of his sins. Wow, I really hope Dave is listening and paying attention, said Amy, Dave's wife, quietly. This sermon is exactly what he needs to hear right now. He's been lazy, inattentive, impatient, and the Holy Spirit is just laying on my heart that he really needs to listen to God and ask for forgiveness and do better. Amy then bowed her head and prayed silently that her husband would realize the error of his ways and ask for forgiveness from God and his wife for his failures. I'm so glad we came to church this morning, she said later to reporters. It's like God knew exactly what message Dave needed so he could start being a better husband and father. Amazing how God works. Now this is the kicker. At publishing time, Amy's husband Dave confirmed that he was overjoyed that his wife had heard that convicting sermon (laughs) and was praying that would lead her to repent of her sins. (laughs) Now we're all laughing because Some of you even nudged your spouse. Um, I saw that. Um, How we come to Scripture is is actually not uh, for the guy next to you. We come to it this morning. Open my eyes. Psalm 119, 18, the psalmist actually teaches us. We come to Scripture. Open my eyes that I would see wonderful things in your law. Psalm 139, search me and know my heart. See if there's any anxious way in me and lead me in your ways everlasting. So as we go to scripture this morning, I believe God has a powerful word for us corporately, but I think he has a powerful word for you and I individually. Let's read the scriptures. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 and following. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 
This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, how many of you guys were here last week for Steve's sermon? Wasn't that great? So encouraging, right? Like, it's like Steve got this great sermon about God loves you so much and He's, you're forgiven for his namesake. And like, it was super positive and happy. Like my text is like, you've heard the Antichrist is coming. Wrong, there's many Antichrists coming. Steve, good cop, Ryan, bad cop. He's gonna be preaching next week about unicorns and fairies. I'll take hell the week following week, okay? It's like, who writes the preaching schedule? It's, oh, duh, me, okay. I got a, I got a problem with me. Okay, here we go. So, um, so here's, here's, here's how this works in 1 John's flow. And I think this is true, actually, of New Testament uh, norms. There's two heirs that both John, Paul does the same thing in many of his letters. Uh, Peter does the same thing in his letters. But it's these two heirs that they, they want to keep bringing us back to. And here, here's error number one. Error number one is to be overly optimistic about how this Calvary road, this life with Jesus, this message of the kingdom of God, to be overly optimistic about how that's all going to play out. And so if you're overly optimistic, like, hey, God's done this defining work for the whole world. He's done it through Jesus. It's gonna be great. If we're overly optimistic, what's going to happen when we face opposition? Hopelessness, despair, discouragement is going to set it. And so John's going to correct this overly optimistic worldview. But the other error that we see, and John's going to actually correct himself in this teaching this morning, is that it's this error of overly pessimistic perspective. Have you ever been around people, or maybe you are these people, or are you just kind of grouchy about everything? Some of you are like, that's me, amen. You just owned it. Praise God, you're, you're being honest, okay? You're confessing your sin. There you go. Yeah, everything's messed up. Everything's wrong. You can critique anything. Overly pessimistic people, they might right-size and critique culture well, but they can't impact it. They might be able to tell everybody what's wrong about everything else, but they have absolutely no 
social influence to affect change. And so there's this overly pessimistic, there's this overly optimistic, and right in the middle is this biblically gospel-centered, creative third way, what I call gospel hope. And so C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letter, says this. He says, tortured fear, pessimism, and stupid confidence, optimism, are both desirable states of mind for the enemy. And the enemy in this, if you're a demon, is Christians. Where culture wants to take us, where our flesh wants to take us, where our world wants to take us, pretend everything's great, this is heaven on earth, be overly pessimistic, this is hell on earth, nothing will ever change. And John's gonna give us this gospel hope, and the way he's gonna introduce the gospel hope is he's gonna say, you've heard that there is an antichrist, actually there's many antichrists. Aren't you glad you came to church? And so this tension is framed up again with this passage in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse 19. He ends his letter with this reminder to the believers he's writing to. He says that we, we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So a question I want you to think about this morning as we dive into this teaching is, is this question. Is Satan alive and well and at work in our world today? Second question, if you answered yes. The answer to the first question was yes. A couple of you are like, no, I don't think he is. Okay, it's yes, all right. Second question is this. If he is, where is he at work? What what, what does that look like? Here's a couple things I wrote down. How about in the formation and in the thought patterns of kids and youth? Who said it? Who said this quote? He alone who owns the youth gains the future. Adolf Hitler. How about in the subtle ways that any acknowledgement of God is written out of our books and out of our history? How about in addiction and in addiction culture? I've watched a few... uh, documentaries. One was about a day in the life of the streets of Skid Row. I can say Satan is alive and well in addiction culture. How about in our average, normal, everyday media consumption? I don't know if you caught this a few years ago, but there was this commercial that came on, and I'm so glad I had DVR because I paused it and I went, I think I just heard something really weird in this commercial. I don't know if any of you caught this, but it was just this commercial about advertising a product and how your life's going to be awesome when you buy this. I think it was for like Windex or something. I'm like, they were depressed and they bought the Windex and life was great or something. I don't know. (laughs) 
but real faint underneath the music of the commercial, true story, was the melody, you are God. And I was like, wow. We're learning from our average media consumption. He's not God, I'm God. I remember 20 years ago when I was just graduating high school, well, college, trying to graduate college, I squeezed four years into seven, so. (laughs) I remember the tenor of the social conversation was around the word tolerance, just tolerate other perspectives. And then I remember a decade ago, it moved from tolerance to advocate for. And I remember two years ago, it moved from tolerate to advocate to now celebrate. And today it's not only celebrate, a different worldview, but if you don't celebrate, it's because you hate people. And so we live in this moment where there are ideas stirred into our social fabric that we're almost unaware of. And so here's what Lewis says in his book, The Screwtape Letters, listen to this. He says, I, this is uh, the, the demons, I live in the managerial age. I live in the world of admin. (laughs) The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens Dickens loved to paint. It's not done in concentration camps and labor camps, and those we just see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered. It's moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the office of a thoroughly nasty business concern. Charles Baudelaire put it this way, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled off was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And so Antichrist is at work today, but I want you to see that the method of Antichrist, if you just work through this passage a little bit, verse 22 says, who is the liar? Verse 26, I write to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And so Antichrist is at work, but one of the tricks of Antichrist is that we wouldn't see Antichrist. And so that we would just be overly optimistic that things are going to be great and there's not going to be resistance. And John's wanting to draw attention and he's wanting to say, this is going to be contested. This is going to be sneaky. This is going to be nuanced. And I'm telling you now, so you're not surprised. He's drawing attention to the complexities of this. Uh, And and just one more quote I wanted to share, share with you about this, uh, this is from Sun Tzu, The Art of War, said, all warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe that we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. And so the method by which we're doing warfare. 
the method by which we are to be the people of God in contested space is that we're doing it in a, a war zone, but the, the war doesn't look obvious. It just looks like a whisper in a commercial. It looks like a little idea. It looks like a little ism, and we can hardly see it. So what John's wanting to do is lift the gaze of the church so they become aware. So I'm going to look at a few observations from this passage this morning with you. Uh, Number one is the tone of this passage. The tone of this passage is this is urgent. Children, verse 18, it's the last hour. It's the last hour. The tone of which John writes this passage is a tone of urgency. It's the last hour. That's a common uh, theme in the New Testament. And without doing a whole deep dive in the last day is the last hour, um, the, the, the idea in the New Testament and how this is used in the New Testament is there's two markers um, that the church saw themselves in. They saw themselves living between these two advents of Jesus. The first advent, the coming of Christ, We're now in what they call the last hour, the church age. And the culmination of all of it will be the second advent of Jesus, where he reigns and rules and puts everything, everything will be subject under his feet. But we're not there yet, but we're past here. We're now in the last hours. We're in the church age. And so part of what we need to see ourselves and the church has historically thought of themselves this way is they've seen themselves having a very prophetic and urgent mission to do. And it's, it's marked by two, actually, attributes and traits in the Gospels. The, the last hour is marked by gospel growth, gospel movement, the gospel spreads, the gospel infiltrates, it goes to all nations. That's the one we love. But the other attribute that it's marked by is gospel trouble, is what I call it. Nobody likes this one. We love the gospel growth, gospel trouble, not so much. Uh, Peter puts it this way, in the last days there's going to be scoffers. Paul puts it this way, in the last days there'll be difficult times, difficult people. People would love to hear what their itching ears want them to hear. And so there's going to be gospel growth, and we should expect that, But with gospel growth always comes what? Gospel trouble. We're in a contested battle. One theme in the book of Acts that's really interesting to track is as the gospel spreads, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. At each point, as it's geographically spreading, there's almost always a riot, a fight, or like, you know, seven sons of Sceva, there's seven, de- you know, seven guys get demonized and they get beat up. Like there's always like a bad brawl right before the enemy gives up ground. There's trouble. But this is a theme in the teachings of Jesus. John was with Jesus when he said, in this world, you will have what? I always joke, I've never seen that text embroidered on a pillow. 
It's always Jeremiah 29, 11, like, plans to prosper you. No, like, you're going to get beat up in Jesus' name. Like, you know, I was like, I was wondering, like, does Hobby Lobby have, like, a pain and suffering section, you know? Join me in suffering, embroider. I don't know. We received the sentence of death. I don't know. So as this is getting rolled out, they're already, this is just right after Jesus' ascension. The church has just been born. And there is already opposition. And I just want to say this. We need to not frame opposition primarily as just some negative thing we have to be dismissive of. That's what we can do sometimes as a church. Like, well, we don't want to look at that. It's kind of hard. We need to see actually opposition as evidence that God is at work. No opposition, it means we're, stalwart, we're, we're stalled out. No opposition, probably lukewarm. No opposition, we're probably just compromising. We need a healthy dose of resistance. It's actually resistance that reveals who we really are. It's the gift of the storm. It's the gift of the fire. It's revealing. It's revealing what's really there. And so we should budget in regular, everyday gospel problems, gospel inconveniences. And John would, Peter would put it this way, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. One of my favorite things, one of my mentors, Barry Arnold, gave me when I became a pastor. He said, uh, he said this little quip, and his rang so true. He says this, you'll be surprised who stays at the church. You'll be surprised who leaves. And I, I've since added, you'll also be surprised how they leave. Barry says, I'm telling you this now so you won't be surprised. Don't be surprised. So you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Uh, no, actually, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, that's how we know. We know it's the last hour. And so this week, as you're interacting, or let's say you go and, and you're having a conversation and, and there's resistance to maybe your gospel perspective, receive that resistance as John's affirmation, it's the last hour. Receive that resistance that you, in your gospel witness, oh, John told me that this is going to happen. Awesome. We are right on pace for the kingdom of God to do exactly what it's supposed to do. Then John's going to say, here's two tests to know who are these antichrists. What are they about? One is a perseverance test. One is a doctrinal test. Here we go. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they, that they all are not of us. The first test John, uh, John's going to point to is perseverance. Do these people persevere in the gospel? And here's a really scary thing, friends. Some of us will be hijacked by false ideology some of us will be hijacked by our own sensual passions. Remember a couple weeks ago, do not love the world, the things of the world? 
All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the sarks, the desires of the eyes, saw desire took, the boastful pride of life, the love of the world will push out our love for God. They're incongruent. Some of us will get hijacked by our wrong ideas of Jesus or the gospel. I'm thinking right now, this week as I was preparing, I've sat with people. I've prayed with them. I've ministered with them. I've tried to serve churches with them, prayed with them, and some of them are gone. Paul put it this way in Timothy, Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. And so when we think about gospel movement, gospel advancement, gospel stuff, kingdom stuff happening in our midst, it's with great fear and trepidation and risk, actually. This stuff is revealing. Pain is revealing. Difficulties, resistance, warfare, it's revealing. And so this antichrist, it's, this is what's so genius about scripture, is it doesn't give us a name. So every generation reads this text. Every generation in church history reads this text. And they point to, here's who antichrist was. So the first, uh, actually in intertestamental period, uh, I think it was 160, Antiochus Epiphanes, they thought he was antichrist. Why? He desecrated the temple. A little bit later in church history, they point to this guy. The point of this is that this is a general description of what an, who an Antichrist is. So anyone that tells you, like, oh, Antichrist is the Soviet government, and here's how, like, just be like, no, it's a general term, and gently correct them, okay? I know, like, a bunch of books were written about saying this person was the Antichrist. I don't think that's what John is saying here. I think this is a general term. Okay, so number one, they don't persevere in the gospel. But number two, there's a, actually a doctrinal test. You guys see this? Verse 21 and 22. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar? The liars, that, this is still in the, this is the context of Antichrist. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. At the brass tacks, just get down to the nitty-gritty of our doctrine. And I like doctrine, and I like peripheral, and I, have new, I like nuance, and I actually would love to debate any nuance of any, because I, I think it's important. But let's just bottom line our faith. Jesus asked the question to Peter, who do you say that the Son of Man is? That's the core issue that Antichrist is going to come. And he's not going to point to the divinity of Jesus, and he's not going to point to the incarnation of Jesus. 1 John chapter 4 John unpacks this a little bit more. Listen to this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, incarnation, is from God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. At the bottom line level, what do we do with Jesus? The challenge of Jesus is this. Everyone loves him as a moral example. They don't like that part where, take up your cross and follow me. That's a little bit of a challenge. Everyone loves like the golden rule, doing to others. Jesus said, said it much better than that. They love that. They hijack that part. They don't like the part where he says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you lust in your heart, they don't like that part. So Jesus presents this challenge. And where we need to take people, I know everyone wants to talk about all the political issues, all the social issues, all these different issues, but where we gotta go in our evangelism and in our discipleship is we gotta take people to Jesus. And our question to them is not, what do you think about this issue? Our question is, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Remember Peter's confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the confession. And so we have this Antichrist at work, and his strategy is one of deception. And here's what's really interesting. It's very important, very, very, very important that as the church, we define our enemy. And here's why. If you don't have an enemy, and some of you know this from maybe being in the military, what happens when you don't have a common enemy? We're gonna make each other our enemy. We are innately wired to yoke with a tribe to fight the common enemy. I, I, I just read this really interesting story. It was about a, a girl who grew up actually in like a communist country in the 90s where it was constantly civil war. She got out of there, she was a young person, high schooler, she got out of there and she made it to a, a safe country. But after a few years, she was so homesick and they were interviewing her and asking her why she, I think she went back to Bosnia, if I remember right in the story. They asked her, well, why do you, why do you leave this nice country where you are safe? And she said, well, I'm safe but I have no purpose. I'm safe, but I have no tribe. I'm safe, but I don't have a common goal that wakes me up every morning. She says, so we just live over here and it's too safe, so we become zombies is basically what she said. And so we've got to see our enemy is not flesh and blood. How much of our world today wants to make everybody the enemy? And Satan loves it because we're not making him the enemy. And so we've got to come together and say, it's th that person over there and that guy over there I disagree with and that person, that's not our enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For our weapons have divine power. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. 
when we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We correct bad ideas. And our enemies are not one another. Just as a side note, um, this is a little parenting hack for you young parents. Um, Sometimes when the kids are fighting with each other, we have four of them, they can get after each other a little bit. Um, We we didn't start this as a program, but um, a couple times the kids have been, you know, really fighting over the years, and Michelle and I will get in our own fight, and like like their fight like bleeds over into us, and next thing you know, we're fighting, and and we'll go into our bedroom and shut the door and talk, and you know what's really funny when we start fighting? You know what it does to the kids? It unifies them. They'll come knock on the door like, can we clean the kitchen or something? Like, <laughs> so we might make up fights now to <laughs> get chores done. Um, do what you want to with that, all right? <laughs> Satan's strategy is simple yet profound. It's deception. He's the liar, verse 22. Satan's method It's simple, yet it's incredibly difficult to navigate. He highlights the bait, and he hides the hook. Listen to Thomas Brooks, Puritan pastor. He wrote a little handbook. You should get it. It's called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Okay? Puritans rock. Listen to this. He says, seriously consider that sin is a very deceitful and bewitching nature. Sin from the greatest deceiver is a child of its own begetting. It is the ground of all the deceit in the world, and it is in its own nature exceedingly deceitful. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It, sin, it'll kiss the soul and look enticing to the soul and yet betray the soul forever. It will with Delilah smile upon us that it may betray us into the hands of the devil." as she did Samson into the hands of the Philistines. Sin gives Satan a power over us and an advantage to accuse us and to lay claim to us as those who wear his badge. It is of a very bewitching nature. It bewitches the soul where it is upon the throne that the soul cannot leave it, though it perish eternally by it. We're all being set up by the deceiver. We're being taught little lies. So, that's pretty pessimistic. Where's the optimism? Here we go. Verse 20. Gospel news. Here we go, friends. But you, you've been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge John's like, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. If you're in Christ and you've received the Spirit and you have the reality of the new covenant alive in you, you now have knowledge. You have the Spirit. You have the anointing. You know the truth. Verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. 
But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as, as it has taught you, abide in him. Who gets the anointing? According to John, who gets it? The pastors? The elders? Who gets it? Y'all. If you're in Christ and you're part of the new covenant family, you actually have the anointing. The miracle. Jeremiah 31 puts it this way about prophetically looking to the power of the new covenant, new birth reality. He says this, I will write my law on their hearts. God wrote his law on your heart by the power of the new birth, and he did it through the power of the Spirit. John 14, Jesus said, I give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Isn't that interesting? He calls it the spirit of truth. Why? Because Jesus saw that lies were the method of Satan. And so that spirit of truth, disseminating lies from truth, it's not just that you want to, we want to be right. Of course, that's important. You want to be right. It's that we want to be guarded. We want to give you the spirit of truth. John 14, 26, but, but the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. If you're in Christ, you have been anointed. And so my question this morning is simple. Do you know what you have? Do you know what you have in you? The power of God, the triune God, the Spirit has been given to you. Do you know what you have? I want to show you a picture of an item. Um, it's going to look really common. Um, that's not it, but it's common. Um, yeah, Beth Carpenter, ladies and gentlemen, working the slides. God bless her. Um, isn't that cool? Anyone know what that is? Did any of you have this? Um, this is Action Comic, Volume 1, 1938. Um, this family, they were getting ready to foreclose on their house on their second mortgage. So they were kind of up against it financially. They were cleaning out the attic and uh, kind of looking through all their old stuff. And, you know, they found this comic book fell out. And they're like, oh, that's kind of cool. So I'll take it down to the hobby shop and just see, you know, it's bright spot on a depressing season of our life. We're losing everything. They get the comic uh, uh, evaluated, and what's it called when you see the worth of something? Thank you. Some of you are appraisers. Thank you. Um, they got appraised. Um, 1.5 million. Yeah, they bought the house and the rest of the neighborhood, and now they're <laughs> landlords, so worked out great, right? Some of you guys are going to go home and look at your comic books. Some of you old guys are like, I can't wait to check my attic. Um, yeah, 1.5. And, and so it's really simple. Do you know what you have? And here's, here's why this is important. If we don't know what we have in the Holy Spirit, 
we will engage Antichrist and the culture of Antichrist with a combative posture where we're primary being motivated by control, anger, and outrage. But if you know what you have, and you really believe that he who is greater that's in you than he that's in the world, and you really believe that, you know what you'll do? You'll have a supreme confidence to engage the evil around you, to engage the lies around you, not because you have to be in control and be right and try and be the Holy Spirit, but because you're rooted in the Holy Spirit. And so here's how this passage ends, and I want you to see the triumph. The triumph over all this is in verse 28. Listen to this. And now, little children, abide in him. Remember the so what of Steve's sermon last week? Remember? I want you to do what? I want you to what? I want you to rest. Abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have what? Anger. Nope. Outrage. Nope. Judgmental attitudes. Nope. I want you to have confidence. So you would not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John wants to empower these believers with an anointing of the Holy Spirit so that they have supreme confidence in the day of warfare and at the ultimate day of the second advent. And notice it doesn't say, this is so different than how we think about God. Notice it doesn't say so that you would really be scared of God at his coming. So that you would all be really overwhelmed with how, like, we're going to be overwhelmed with God, but it's amazing to me that the New Testament says, no, when you see him, I don't want you to shrink back. And I don't want your primary emotion to be shame. I want it to be confidence. And that access is available to all of us. So what's the Spirit doing? Romans 8, 13 and 14, and Paul says in that passage, he says, it's by his spirit we cry what? Abba, Father. You know that word Abba? It's translated what? Anyone know? Da- no, da- no, 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 Dada. Dada. You're like, why is that important? Here's why it's important. Anyone got like a four or five-year-old little girl that can put her hair in pigtails and say, hey, Daddy. What's that four-year-old, five-year-old? Daddy, can I have a candy? Daddy can be manipulated. Dada, that's one-year-old stuff. What what does a one-year-old want? They just want to be with Dada. It's by a spirit. What's the spirit doing constantly in our lives? It's rerooting us in our identity that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, which is 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and this is what we are. And it's that supreme confidence, not in ourselves, but in the anointing and the gift of the Spirit that can cause us not to be overly optimistic and, and, and just push away anything that feels painful or be overly pessimistic in a world that's gone mad, but we can be the creative third way, the people of God standing in the gap 
with supreme confidence of walking and abiding in him so that we would not have shame at his appearing. And so my exhortation this morning is simple. This is from Thomas Brooks, the last line of his book in the Precious Remedies book. He says this. He says this, for a close, remember this, that your life is short, your duties are many, your assistance great, and your reward sure. Therefore, faint not, hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make amends for all. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. Give them a supreme confidence in the day of trouble, which we live in. Give them a strong confidence that they've received the Spirit. There is anointing on their life. God, thank you that the Spirit is given without measure. Thank you that it's not given to the people who had enough degrees or enough obedience or enough this or enough that, that if they're in Christ, they've received the Spirit and that they can simply rest and abide in you. God, make us strong in this community as a place of grace and truth. Make us strong in our families. God, we pray for our youth. We pray for our young people. We pray for young life. We pray for Dustin and the student ministry. We pray for the kids ministry and Karen. God, we want to be the kind of church that takes a supreme confidence in you and then engages the trouble around us with, uh, with just settled gospel hope. Lord, thank you for this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.